0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Exodus chapter 13. It's been a few weeks since we were officially in our text in the book of Exodus, and so um, just as kind of a quick recap, we left off with um, the children of Israel Being released from Egypt, um, being able to be set free after that Passover night. um, God comes through the the Egyptian cities and takes the firstborn, and the Israelite firstborns are spared because the blood on the doorposts. And so um, that next morning, the the horrific feeling of of the death um, that has touched every home in Egypt leads to a rushing of the Israelites out, right? Like we talked about how um, they couldn't wait to get rid of them. They're paying them money and gold and jewelry and all kinds of stuff to get out of town because they were ready in that moment for them to go. And so we highlighted the fact that 430 years of slavery now ends with Israel being set free. And God gave instructions to them about continuing to do the Passover going forward and what it was going to look like to consecrate their firstborn uh, moving forward as well. And so we kind of left off with that. And so we turn our attention now to uh, chapter 13, verse 17. I want to read to you our text this morning, starting in verse 17. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. This is one of my favorite passages in the book of Exodus. This is a passage that I've referenced before uh, we ever even got to the book. Um, I think it is such an important passage because it, it talks about the, uh, the wise goodness of God, the promise-keeping wisdom of God's goodness and the ways that he carry out, carry out and acts towards his people with his actions. And so I'm excited for us to be able to look at it a little bit more in depth today. Um, and so we'll start with our summary sentence this morning. If you allow the Lord to direct your steps Expect to be led occasionally on paths that seem unnecessarily long and out of the way. But keep in mind, he knows the best ways to go to keep his promises in the best ways possible. If you allow the Lord to direct your steps, which is what Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 talks about, right? Like that we want to trust in the Lord with all our heart, lean not on our own understanding, uh, in all our ways acknowledge Him and He will direct our ways. He will direct our path. He will direct our steps. So if we go that route, if we lean on Him for understanding about this life, if we allow Him to direct our steps and direct our path, we should expect to be led occasionally on paths that seem unnecessarily long and out of the way. Not the routes that we would choose to go. But if we, if we experience that, we need to keep in mind that he knows the best ways to go. And the best ways to go are the best ways for him to keep his promises in the best ways possible towards us. For our kids, God's path for his people is always the best way to go. Now, you'll remember the goal of Exodus, this whole idea of God rescuing his people from Egypt, is for God to create a people, to create a nation with a culture and with a community, with a, with a list of rules and laws and obligations, with uh, worship patterns. It's, it's God's goal to create a people who will follow him, who will trust him, and who will worship him. Now, these first 13 chapters have been devoted to God rescuing this people, right? There hasn't been a whole lot of communication to them about what it looks like to trust him and to follow him and to worship him. That's coming now from chapter 13 on. Everything else is devoted to teaching the children of Israel how to do these things, how to trust him, how to follow him, and how to appropriately worship him. And it starts immediately with us seeing where God wants to take them. And how God wants to take him, It starts in our notes by trusting the routes that God has chosen. Trusting the routes... That God has chosen. You'll remember not that long ago, we were teaching in the book of Psalms, and we, we talked about the lot lines that God gives to us, right? And we talked about how when the children of Israel actually settle into the promised land, they had uh, different areas divided up for their family, for their people, right? So the 12 tribes of Israel come into the promised land, and God begins to deviate out, uh, deviate out who, where they're going to live, where, what property is going to be theirs, Right? And so the psalmist talks about trusting the lot lines, trusting the, the boundaries and the, the property lines given to him. Whatever that may look like, uh, that we trust those. Where we settle, we trust Today we're looking at when God moves us and when God directs us and God brings different circumstances into our life that we trust the routes that he's taking us, right? When we decided to to sign up to be a part of God's people, when we opted in, when we were convicted of our sin, the Holy Spirit drew us to him and we began to follow him and we chose to step away from the things of this world to, to, to start following him and the things that he desires for us, we started down a path to glory, right? We were we were saved. We were justified. We were declared righteous. And now we're on this, this journey of God making us like Christ. We're being sanctified with an end goal of being glorified. When Jesus comes back, then everything's set right, including ourselves, right? We're recreated. We're made right. We get new bodies that now are free from sin, free from death, free from pain. We're on that route. We're on that path. And And all of our paths to get there kind of look differently as God develops our faith and and, and changes us and conforms us into the image of his son. The assurance that we get from today's text is that we can trust the route that he takes us. Whatever the path looks like, we can trust it. Number one in your notes, the shortest distance isn't always the best route. The shortest distance isn't always the best route. It's interesting if you look at Um, a a map of the promised land. Instead of going north out of Egypt towards Canaan, they go south. This is not the obvious way to go. It's not the shortest way to go, and it's not the most direct way to go. But as we learn from the text today, it was the best way to go. It was the best route to take to get where they were going. They went away from Canaan, the text tells us, and they went into the wilderness. Now, we know the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? So if I was to, to walk to my truck, which I parked um, across the parking lot, if I needed to get there quickly, I'm going to line up myself with that truck, and I'm going to go straight line to it, even if it means walking through the parking lot or walking through an island of, of um, plants or bushes. Like, if I've got to get there the fastest way possible, then I'm probably going to draw that straight line mentally and say, that's the direction I'm going, You would think that God would pick the shortest route possible to get his people from bondage in Egypt to freedom, to freedom in Canaan, and yet he doesn't. It wasn't the best route for them to take. It's called the way of the sea, and it was the quickest way to get there, but not the best way to get there. It's been speculated that had they gone this route, they would have been in the promised land in two weeks. Two weeks of walking, and they would have been there. We know it ends up taking them 40 years to get there right? Now, the route that they took was shorter than 40 years. They're, they're 40 years into it because of their own rebellion and, and grumbling and complaining and distrust of God. But had they gone this shortest route, if they were just walking and there were no obstacles, it would have been a probably a two-week journey. When you go on trips, um, most of the time we're not looking to take the longest time possible. We want the shortest time possible, right? The longer the trip, certainly the greater the need to reduce the amount that it takes to get there, right? Um, I've got a couple of uh, routes uh, pictured here. Uh, If you were leaving from um, Sonoy and driving down to Fish in Port St. Joe, which is where I went a couple of weeks ago, this is what showed up on my GPS this morning, right? There's a couple of different ways to get there. I would call it the traditional way, of going down through Columbus, through Eufaula, through Dothan, down into Port St. Joe. It takes four hours and 56 minutes this morning. There is a faster way to get there. It's not much faster, but it's four hours and 51 minutes. Now, me and John Wallace always have a debate about which route we're going to take because John wants to take the fastest way to get there, right? And when we did this route one time, and I warned him, I said, John, if we go this route, it will be a little bit faster, but there is literally nothing There is nothing between Columbus and Port St. Joe. Like, there's nowhere to stop and eat. There's nowhere to stop and go to the bathroom. There's literally nothing. And we were going in the middle of the night, and I said, John, if we break down, there's nobody to help us. Like, somebody will have to come from Noonan and come help us because there's nothing there. We took it. It was faster. It was five minutes faster, right? And, uh, man, that five minutes was so precious, right? This time we went the, the traditional route, right? And we were able to stop, and uh, th- there was kind of a security and a safety knowing, yeah, it's a little bit longer, a little bit longer, but there's some security in knowing that if something happened, there's plenty of places to stop along the way, right? I consider it a better route, even though it's a little bit longer. Um, if you were to draw up the distance between Huntsville, Alabama, to uh, Sharpsburg, our sixth graders went to Huntsville this past week, um, and went to the Space Center, right? So if you take a route from Huntsville to Sharpsburg, there's several different ways you can go. You see three hours and 41 minutes, three hours and 50 minutes. There's even one here, three hours and 48 minutes, with fewer turns, if you want fewer turns in your route, right? I didn't go to Huntsville. I went to Chattanooga with our sixth graders. They went to Chattanooga, then they went over to Huntsville, and then they came home from Huntsville to Sharpsburg. Imagine my surprise when my sixth grade teachers told me, hey, we're coming home from Huntsville and we're in Chattanooga right now, right? I was like, what? Like, is this like a crazy prank, like joke? Like, what do you mean you're in Chattanooga? Like, look at the map. Like, Chattanooga is north of where we're trying to get to, right? This is the route that our, our group took to get home. I couldn't even plug it in to my GPS to show you how long it should take, right? Like I had, to, I had to manipulate it even on Friday to show me, and it took like over four and a half hours on the GPS to get home. So I'm sitting in my office thinking like, where are my sixth graders at? So I called the company and I was livid. I mean, I was just, I was just giving them all of my opinions about it, right? And I said, I said, guy, it doesn't make any sense why your guy went this route. I said, I'm plugging it in my GPS. I've got, I've got three different routes to get home, and none of them are the route that your guy took. Now, I think he covered for his guy, but he tried to assure me that going to Chattanooga north and then back down is the safest route possible for two buses, right? Now, I know Alabama's more country maybe than Georgia, um, but he tried to explain to me that the roads in Alabama aren't near as safe as the highway going to Chattanooga to get back home, right? I told him, I said, I'm ready to take my chances. Like, this is is not a five-minute difference. This is a 45-minute difference in getting home. The route that Israel took to the promised land is similar in direction if you go from Huntsville to Sharpsburg and then back up to Chattanooga. It's not a direct route. Now, I don't know how aware the Israelites were of where they were going and the route they were taking, but I'm sure there were some smart people that were saying, hey, this is where the grumbling's going to start right? Before we even get to a need for water or a need for food, let's talk about the route we're going, right? Like, you probably had some guys, some leaders in Israel that were lined up with their families, and they're like, all right, we're going this way. And Moses is like, all right, everybody over here, we're getting ready to leave when we're going this way. And you would have had people going like, whoa, like, we're already starting off on the wrong path. We're going in the exact opposite direction of where we should be going. But what we see from the text is that it was intentional. And it was designed, and God wasn't covering for Moses. Maybe the guy at the tour company was covering for his guy. God's not covering for Moses. He says, this is the best route for my people to go. The reason for choosing this different route is that Israel wasn't ready to face the trial that they would have faced on the direct route. says that they would have turned back. says the Philistines were waiting for them. So even though that path was near, God said, we're going to go around it. Lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. It's interesting that God chooses a route that's best for their faith. He's got bigger purposes in mind than just moving them from point A to point B. Like, my concern on Friday was moving my people from point A to point B right? I wasn't really concerned about their faith. Like, it was physical for me. I got to get these people home because I told their parents to come pick them up at a certain time, and I don't want it to be 45 minutes later, right? God says, we've got a lot at, got a lot at stake here, and we're going to choose a route that is best for the people's faith. He takes them the long way to develop their faith. It's a hard road, but it's a way of getting them where they need to be spiritually before he gets them where they need to be physically, Now, we know that Israel still struggles with the idea of going back to Egypt. Like This doesn't exempt them completely, but we do know that they never go back to Egypt. right? The threat seems to be here. Had they gone this route, it wouldn't have just been an idea, something they talked about. They would have packed up and come home. And God says, we're going to avoid that route. We're going to go a different way. We're going to develop their faith on the journey to the promised land. We're going to pick the right route, the best route to grow them. The shortest distance isn't always the best route for us either. The path and the route that God takes us. And some of you can look back over your life and see like a broken road of of how you would have planned things and how things went. And where you are today. and, And how you would have gone a different route. Like you would have picked something different to get where you are. But God had a particular reason for bringing you the way that he did. Just as he did his people back in the Old Testament here. Number two. The worst scenarios we experience aren't the worst. And just let that settle in for a second. The worst scenarios that we experience aren't the worst. We're told here from the text that the Philistine army lay ahead of Israel had they gone the route that made the most sense. If you had taken a poll, the people would have chosen this route. God doesn't lead them that way because the land of the Philistines is there. And they were a great army, a great people, and the, the idea of war would have made the people crumble. These enemies are so great that the people wouldn't have just talked about going back to Egypt. They would have actually done it. Think about how they're going to panic here in just a few, in just a few, short, texts, just a few short verses. They're going to panic at the pursuit of Egypt coming at them. Right? So we know as we go into chapter 14, they get to the Red Sea and the Egyptians and Pharaoh start coming after them, and they're panicked about that. A group of people that God's already defeated, a group of people that God has beaten into submission, they're panicking over a beaten Egypt. Imagine how they would have felt about a, a strong and victorious Philistine army. They're not ready for the Philistines. Now, it's important to note here that the Philistines aren't too great for Yahweh. The Philistines aren't too great of an army for God. This isn't God being worried and saying, hey, we gotta go the long route because yes, I defeated Egypt, but wow, the Philistines are a totally different animal. This isn't about God and his weaknesses here. This is about the, the Israelites and their weak faith that hasn't been grown and developed yet. This has nothing to do with whether God could defeat them or not. It's the faith of Israel that hasn't developed enough to trust him with the Philistine threat. You even see in the text, they're not ready for this, and yet they leave Egypt, what does the text say? Equipped for battle. They're equipped by God to do this. They're ready, they just didn't understand they were ready. What an encouragement to know that we follow an all-knowing God who truly knows all the scenarios and the alternate scenarios. We talk about God's wisdom. We talk about his all-knowingness. It's not just that God knows everything that is happening. He knows everything that could have happened. He knows everything that could have happened, and He chose the route. He chose the path based on His wisdom for what's best. He could have gone a different way, would have led to a totally different result. But in His all knowingness, He said, We're not going that way, we're going this way, because this is better. This is better. We know that Scripture teaches us that we're equipped for every good work, but we know that God will only let us face trials that our faith will grow through and not be scorched by. Think about what we talked about, the parable of the sower and the seed, right? The gospel gets spread, and sometimes it falls on hearts where it springs up, but there's not deep enough root. And when the sun comes up, it scorches the plant, and it kills it. Right? And so there was this initial expression of faith, but it doesn't really grow. It's not sustainable. It doesn't persevere. You as a believer will face trials that are specifically chosen for you by God. And it's the best route possible. And for you, you think it might be the worst case scenario. And what you don't know is the alternate scenarios that you will never experience. Like, Israel's complaining at the Red Sea, and they're like, you got to be kidding me. Like, here come the Egyptians. Like, why didn't we just stay in Egypt? Why didn't we just die? And God's like, if you only knew. Like, you think this was scary? You would have been scared out of your mind if we'd have gone the other way. But they they don't know, right? So all they know is the worst-case scenario, and they're thinking this is the absolute worst thing that could happen. And God's like, this ain't even close to the worst thing that could have been happening to you. I've spared you from that. I've spared you from the true worst case scenario, and I've put you in a spot that's actually the best possible place for you to be, the best possible place for your faith to grow and to develop and to learn to trust me more than you do right now. That's what God is intending to do here through the route that he chooses. His preferred route's not going to be easy for him, They're going to face the uncertainty of the Red Sea, right? They're going to reach a dead end, and it's like, where do we go? The Egyptians are coming from behind. We can't go forward because the Red Sea's here. The Egyptian army's pressing in. He doesn't go this route to avoid trials. He goes this route to put them in the right trials, the productive trials. He's going to split the Red Sea wide open. And it's gonna gonna have a lasting impact on them. We see it in the book of Psalms where they keep writing about the exodus and the deliverance through the Red Sea. It's a huge moment in their faith journey. God protects us from the worst case scenarios that are worse than our worst case scenarios we experience. Man, believe that today. God protects us from the worst case scenarios that are worse than, than our worst case scenarios that we do experience. And we got people in our church right now that are going a route that they didn't intend to go. This isn't the route they would have chosen, right? Like they've been rerouted in a direction that feels long and feels out of the way and feels unnecessarily hard. Feels like worst case scenario. And what we don't have privy to is what the worst case scenarios really are. And how God spared us from it. And we can sit here and think, like, why me, Lord? Like, why are you doing this? Like, this isn't the best route. This isn't the way to go. And God's like, man, you have no idea. You have no idea if we had gone the other way, how much worse it would have been. Like, this is the best way to go. This is the best possible outcome for your faith. This is where we're going so that you don't just go somewhere physically. You get somewhere spiritually, too. All the trials we face are under divine supervision. He protects us from the greatest trials that would defeat us. He knew his people could handle this. He knew what they couldn't handle. He knew they needed to take the long way home. It wasn't going to be the direct route. It wasn't going to be the fastest route. It was going to be the best route that he chose for them. Genesis 50:20 one commentator said is the Romans 8:28 of the Old Testament. We know Romans 8:28 says all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Genesis 50:20 is when Joseph says, "Hey, what you meant as evil, God meant for good." Right? It's that Old Testament truth, the same promise of Romans 8:28. What looks bad is actually used for good by God. He's always working for our good even when things look bad. We don't always understand it, we don't always like it, but we can trust it whatever God happens to be doing right now, do you believe that it's the best route he could take you on? You may not right now. God wants to move you in the direction where you do, where you say at the end of the day, this isn't the route I would have gone. but It's the best route. It's not the fastest way. It's the best way. The truth for us to remember here is that God is wise and therefore always knows which ways are best to take. He's wise and therefore always knows which ways are best to take. The question we can ask ourselves is, are we willing to trust the guide when we can't understand the route? Can we trust the guide when we can't understand the route? Now, I called the tour company on Friday because I didn't trust the guide. I just didn't. I had ridden with him halfway and I knew I didn't trust him. (laughs) I didn't trust his all-knowing wisdom to know the best route to get us home. So I felt like I had to make a call and say, hey, this can't be best. This can't be right. We don't have to do that with God, though. His track record is far better. I've dealt with this tour company before. I knew they don't know everything, right? God does, and so I don't have to question him. Even when I'm, I'm tempted to, even when I'm thinking like, God, this can't be the best route to go, man, I trust the guide. Even if I'm confused about the route, I say, you know what, I trust to the one who's making the plans. I trust the one who's on, who's the one behind the GPS for me. I trust the one who has set the course. Number two, we invest in the promises that God has made. We invest in the promises that God has made. And it's kind of weird that they throw in this this picture of Joseph because we haven't heard about Joseph really since the beginning of Exodus, and that was just when we were told that everybody forgot about him. We haven't heard about him from the narrative sense since the end of Genesis. And it says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. To invest in God's promises, you have to understand their content. What does God really promise? Well, Joseph was able to rest at the end of his life because he understood the promises made in times past about his future. Joseph lives to a a ripe old age. Remember, he was, he was sold into slavery, he escapes from slavery in Egypt, he's raised up as a leader, God uses his leadership to spare not just Egypt, but his family, Joseph's family, the future Israelites, spares them from famine, spares a whole lot of people around the surrounding areas from famine, right? That's that idea that, hey, brothers, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good, see the salvation that's come because of what happened, Right? Joseph lives to this ripe old age and he comes to the end here and he says, hey, I want my body to be buried in the promised land. He understood the promise made in Genesis 15 to Abraham that the people of Israel were going to go into Egypt, they were going to be slaves, but they were going to come out later and they were going to be given the land promised to them. So he stakes his life on the fulfillment of these promises. This passage comes from Genesis 50 where he brings all of them together and says, you better not leave me behind. Like, you guys are going to be so excited when that day comes and you leave. You better take my body with you because I don't want to be buried here. You read in Genesis 49, you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all those guys buried back in the promised land. He says, you take me back home. You take my body with you. Don't leave me behind. Hebrews 11 says this was an act of faith. It was Joseph expressing his belief and trust in what was to come. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He knew his descendants would become slaves, but he also knew they would be rescued and freed. He knew the promises of God. That should be a major goal of studying Scripture, right? Studying Scripture is not an end in and of itself, right? Like, it's not, hey, I read some Scripture today, I did it. We read Scripture to see the promises of God. We search Scripture when reading for the promises that we can cling to. It helps us to invest in those promises now. These things that are to come in the future, we read about them, we believe them, and it shapes the way we live right now. To invest in God's promises, you have to envision their fulfillment. Think about the context of Joseph here and his discussion about his bones. And it comes from a culture where they were super careful with the bones, right? Like we know a lot about Egyptians just, just from a basic sense of going through school, right? Like we know they, they wanted to preserve the bodies for as long as possible. Man, they would, they would decorate in, in, in elaborate ways those, those coffins. I mean, they build pyramids where they can put the coffins and really secure them. They would fill their coffins and their tombs up with stuff to take into the afterlife. Man, it was a huge discussion about how you wanted your bones handled if you lived to that ripe old age, where you're coming to the end of your life, you're not dying prematurely, you're living to the end. Man, it was a big deal. How do you want your body preserved? What do you want stuffed in there? Like, what is this going to look like? How does this impact your afterlife? Joseph's raised in this culture, he's lived in this culture, and he says, I don't want anything to do with this culture when it comes to the afterlife. He says, don't put my body in a pyramid. You keep it where it's, like, accessible, So that when y'all leave, you pull me and I go with you. I'm not staying here. This isn't where my security is. This isn't where my hope is. And he knew the promises of God. He says, you take me with you. As good as his life ended, he's a a leader of Egypt, second in command. As good as his life ended, there were promises of something better to come. And he clung to those promises. His act was an act of confidence in God's faithful promise-keeping provision. And our dead body should bear witness to his faithfulness too. When we attend funerals, like when we attend your funeral one day, may it be that your dead body proclaims the faithfulness of God, that we talk about you and we talk about your journey, we talk about your faith, we put your body in the ground and we say, this individual had confidence that his body was coming back to life, that her body was coming back to life, that when Jesus came, they would be raised to walk in newness of life forever. Joseph had that belief. He said, take me with you. Bury me in the promised land. You fast forward all the way to Joshua 24, 32, he finally gets buried there. You don't think about it when we think about them wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. We think about them setting up the tabernacle, setting up camp, tearing down camp. We gotta move. We're just kind of circling the wilderness. Think about every time they move, somebody is tasked with moving Joseph's bones. It's like, you got to be kidding me. Why do we have to keep moving this guy's dead body? Like, we know we ain't even going into the promised land, right? Like, they're told when they get there, hey, because you didn't have faith, all oh, y'all are going to die. Like, like it's going to be 40 years before your, gener- your next generation even goes into the promised land. But they keep moving his bones around. Man, what a visual reminder that would have been that we're going to get there. We're going to make it. We are going to be victorious in the end. God is going to keep his promises. God eventually keeps his promise to Joseph, and, and they go into the promised land, and he's buried there. The truth to remember, God is always faithful to keep his promises to his people, even after long delays. It took hundreds of years to get there, but Joseph is eventually buried there. It was an act of faith. The question for us is, are we willing to wait for what we know? Are we willing to wait for what we know to be true? Do we get restless sometimes when we don't see God fulfill what he said he was going to fulfill? Do we get restless when we don't always see his goodness in the midst of trials? Or will we wait for what we know to be true? The mention of this reminds us, like it kind of fits in weird here, but the mention of this reminds us that God is always doing something that's bigger in his plans. Like there's a bigger plan going on. Bigger plan going on than just the Israelite suffering. Like He's got bigger things at work, and he's keeping those promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's still keeping promises today. Lastly, number three, we follow the guidance that God has revealed. We'll go quickly here. Follow the guidance that God has revealed. So three sections that we've seen in our text. One that highlights the route. God knows the best routes for us to take. The second section here highlights the faith of Joseph, that he's going with him. Take my bones and bury me in the promised land is what he's screaming from his grave. Don't leave me behind. It's an act of faith that he believed God would keep his promises. And then lastly, we see the presence of God revealed. That as they move, God goes with them, God goes before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. Note that verse 22 says it never departed from them. The presence of God never departed from them. Number one, God gives us guidance in our brightest and darkest moments. Day and night, he goes with them. And I've seen some artistic renditions of this recently. Um, it's hard to believe that they ever doubted and, and couldn't trust God when you see like, what, what it would have looked like to have a pillar of cloud leading you by day and this fiery pillar at night that even if it wasn't leading you, kind of stood as a protective guard against anybody getting to you. It's a crazy cool picture. It never departed from him. It helps us to see that in the brightest moments and the darkest moments, God goes with us today too. He's gonna guide his people by day and by night in a way that illuminates the path of his people while confounding the enemy. He went before them by day and by night. Whenever they needed to move, and they never, and it was he never departed from them. Exodus forty verses thirty-four through thirty-eight. We'll get to it eventually. Says that um, man, they didn't move unless the cloud or the pillar moved. Like they, they knew when it was time to pack up and go because it started moving. He never departed from them. God's presence provides ultimate security and safety for His people. Just a chapter later, here in chapter fourteen, verse nineteen, says, "Then the angel of the of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them." And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. There was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And he stood and protected them. That presence of God protected them from the enemy. He does this for 40-plus years as they await their entry into the promised land, always going with them. Now, what do we have today? We don't have a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire that goes with us visibly. But we know that we've been given God's word, Psalm 119, 105, that acts as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. He has given us the guidance and direction we need to follow him. They didn't have the Old Testament and the New Testament to read back then. They needed a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to guide them because they didn't have anything to to really guide them. We do. And we've got God's word that guides us and directs us. He gives us guidance in the bright moments and the dark moments. Number two, God walks with us to ensure our safe passage and arrival. Not only does he know the best ways, he goes along with us to make sure we get there. Up to this point, we've seen God coming to a distressed Israel. Now we see him going with Israel. I mean, He has joined himself to them, and he goes with them. He knows the best ways, and he goes along with us to make sure we get there. He'll never leave us. He's always guiding us. John 14, 16 through 18, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm not going to leave you behind like orphans without guidance and direction. He says, I'm leaving you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes our guiding cloud today. He's our pillar of fire that we follow. He lives inside of us and he guides us and directs us. Romans 8, 14 says, if you're sons of God, you are led by the Spirit of God. We're led by the Spirit of God if we're true believers. The truth to remember here, God is always present with his people to guide them by walking with them. And he guides us by walking with us the application for us today, remind yourself, particularly when you find yourself in trials that, that are not the route you would have gone. Remind yourself, God knows what he's doing. He doesn't get in a hurry. And that as long as you're following him, you are safe within his shelter of blessing. Remind yourself of that. He knows what he's doing. He knew exactly why he went the route that he went. He doesn't get in a hurry. Joseph had to wait forever to get buried, but it was part of God's plan, the whole process, part of his plan. As long as you're following him by day and by night, you're safe within his shelter of blessing. I'll close by reading Psalm chapter 18, verse 28. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness for by you I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you that you are a wise, good, promise-keeping God. Lord, we're thankful that your all-knowingness extends beyond just the here and now of reality, that you know alternate scenarios. If there were alternate universes, you'd know about them. Lord, you choose the best routes possible for your people. And at times, Lord, we're in in trials and difficulties that feel like the worst-case scenarios. Like, we can't think about how things could be any worse than they are right now. And yet, you know they could be. Lord, thank you that you spare us from the trials that would kill our faith. You choose the trials that strengthen our faith. You choose the trials that develop our faith. Lord, we're we're eternally grateful for that. Lord, help help it to be a truth that we can trust when we leave today that whatever we encounter, whatever route you have us on going home today, Lord, that we'll be reminded it's the best route. might be the long route. might be the inconvenienced route might be the the out-of-the-way route, but it's the best route. We thank you that you know it and that you guide us on it. Help us to trust you as the guide when we don't trust the route. Lord, we thank you that you've given us promises that we can cling to and trust in, even in death, that we can put our hope and faith in what you're going to do. Lord, thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit to guide us by day and by night. Lord, help us to trust you to direct our paths. We want you to direct our steps. help us to remember that when you do, you're going to direct them in the best ways possible to keep your promises to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.